Falava. This is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Susana Suzuki. Coming up. Our recommendation is safety first, uh, always. The Cook Islands braces itself as tropical cyclone Nat passes by. Also. The Queens has always been directly responsible for the military. Tonga's king loses confidence in Prime Minister Siausi Suvaleni. And later on, New Zealand Foreign Minister Winston Peters leads a delegation to the Pacific. Tropical cyclone Nat is passing through the Cook Islands, with strong winds and heavy swell warnings in place for the southern group of islands. Meanwhile, storm surges in the northern group have caused a school to be flooded early on Monday morning local time. Tiana Haxton reports. Apeitetautu students on Penryn Island were relocated to their local cyclone shelter as the ocean began to creep into the school grounds. The island's executive officer, Punavano, says the island has experienced rough conditions in the four days leading up to this morning's flooding. It caused a sea flooding around the school area. It's a uh, low-lying area. The power went off. Maybe the, the seawater have gotten into the, uh, the mains and uh, so no power for the school. Mr Vano says the rough weather is easing as the cyclone, which was still a Category 1 storm on Monday afternoon local time, moves further to the southeast. However, the storm system is being closely monitored by the Cook Islands Met Service with choppy seas and high ocean swells and storm surges forecast. The Met Service is advising the public to stay away from coastal areas as a cyclone passes across and above the southern group of islands. Operations Officer Bates Mania says flooding is expected in low-lying areas. We would expect those in the coastal areas to get some uh, coastal inundation and also we're expecting some heavy swells and very rough seas. Our recommendation is safety first uh, always, especially the Omapuera don't go swim at this time. Cyclone Nat is expected to cause isolated damage to trees and homes made of light materials. Emergency Management Cook Islands Director John Strickland says the country is prepared. The Cook Islands are always resilient. We're always prepared. As we speak, the messages and normal communications to all the pioneers has been relayed, keeping everybody updated, the community and all. So we are very much prepared. The Aitutaki and Ngaputuru Island clusters are expected to bear the brunt of the cyclone as it passes through the country. The Southern Group communities have prepared accordingly. Maoke's Executive Officer Royston Jones says the islands prepare for the storms ahead of the cyclone season every year. We've already done all our preparations. We're just making sure all our drains and culverts are clear so that uh, any heavy rain, less risk of flooding down the harbour. We've moved everything up to higher ground for the expected sea surge. We've prepared. You can get the latest information on Cyclone Nat through the Regional Cyclone Forecasting Centre hosted by the Fiji Met Service at www.met.gov.fj. A correspondent in Tonga, Galafi Moala, says Tonga for some months has been awash with concerns that two commoners hold the key post of Foreign Minister and Defence Minister. 
This comes after a memorandum from the Privy Council announced the king was withdrawing his confidence in Prime Minister Huakavemi Liku Siasi Sovaleni as the Defence Minister and Cabinet's only female member, Fekita Utoikamanu, as the Foreign Minister. Aminiasi Kefu, who is a former Attorney General in Tonga, says removing a minister is not something King Tupou VI can do without the backing of the Prime Minister, so the ball remains in Huakavemiliku's court. Galafi Moala spoke to Don Wiseman about the implications of what was a very unusual announcement. It has been rumoured over the last week that the Prime Minister had requested confirmation from the palace office about two appointments for ministerial positions. They did not make it public what those two positions were, but apparently it's been since June when he requested that. And so the latest release from the palace office now has become clear that the request for those two ministerial positions, was one was the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the other one was the, the Minister for the Defence Force. Why? And why well, those two roles? Well, by custom, uh, the king has always been directly responsible for the military. And so the previous ministers over the military has been noble. What was politically said that in those days was that it has provided a check and balance so that the military could never be used by the government for political reasons. So that's the military ministerial position. The other one is on the Minister of Foreign Affairs. Uh, it has also been traditionally that it's the head of state. The king is the one that travels overseas and creates diplomatic relationships with other nations. For example, King Taufa Haldeboda IV was the one that uh, opened up the door for Tonga to have diplomatic relations with China. And they rejected Taiwan and accepted China. Saudi Arabia was another a nation that King Taufa Haldeboda IV opened. So it's tradition that has been always with foreign ministries. The king has been the one uh, in charge of that particular area. Not in recent years, though. Well, especially not since the 2010 reform that has taken place. Although it has been leaked out that the king has been displeased about the way foreign affairs has been going on in terms of establishing embassies or foreign offices overseas. And apparently that's the displeasure that made him want the current minister of foreign affairs to be no longer in the position. Dramatic undermining of the prime minister, isn't it? It is. But when you look at the memorandum, you know, the memorandum was to us here locally. It's, It's a very strange memorandum. Firstly, it did not come from the palace office. It was from the Privy Council. And the Privy Council in Tonga is a council that should have no teeth since the 2010 reform. The Privy Council currently should be supposed to be just advisors to the king, legal advisors to the king. So this memorandum came from the Privy Council to the Chief Secretary of Cabinet. And it's a strange way, Don, of the way they worded it. It says His Majesty was pleased by and wish to advise and wish the advice of his Privy Council to withdraw his confidence and consent to the appointment of Honourable as the Minister for His Majesty's Forces. If the Privy Council isn't what it was, is this constitutionally correct? Are they able to make an announcement such as this? They are not. 
they are not they are to be a group of advisors uh, to the king that has absolutely no power at all, government or even at the palace office other than advice. So when you have your advisor coming in and making an announcement like this, it's a very strange happening. How would you see this playing out? Well, the way I see locally is that the king and the prime minister have not really, since 2021, have not really gotten along. And both of them very strong in what they want achieved. And the prime minister has got his own agenda. He's following that. I, I guess the, the palace office, especially through the Privy Council, that are advising the king because they've got their own agenda themselves. And so this issue is something that we've been expecting that sooner or later it's going to come up, the strained relationship between the two. One of the big issues for the Tongan government is that it's very, su- it's very soon going to assume the leadership of the Pacific Islands Forum, And within that, the foreign minister plays a big role. So are we likely to see the king heading up and down from Suva and so on as he deals with matters to do with the Pacific Islands Forum? Today it has been announced that Winston Peters, the New Zealand foreign minister, is arriving in Tonga. And he's having a meeting with the prime minister, who has now been disowned by the king in terms of being the minister of the military. And also he's having a meeting with the foreign minister of Tonga, which is the only woman in cabinet, Utoi Kamanu. It's only uh, August is when they're going to have the... The forum here, in which the Prime Minister is going to be chair, there's a lot of work, a lot of preparation that needs to be done for that. They're even doing a huge construction here in Lupalofa, where they're going to build uh, hotel rooms, cafes, and all kinds of stuff where the forum is going to be held. And they have promised that it will be finished by June. But now, it's like a dismissal of the Minister of Foreign Affairs and the head of the military in a very strange situation. It's not a good time for that to happen. A U.S. academic says the Biden administration's failure to fully engage with the Pacific during its first year is what has landed them in the transactional dilemma it's experiencing as it competes with China for influence in the region. Michael Walsh is an affiliate researcher at Georgetown University's Centre for Australian, New Zealand and Pacific Studies. He was also the chair of the Asia-Pacific Security Affairs Subcommittee on the Biden Defense Working Group during the 2020 U.S. presidential campaign. Reflecting on the past few years of U.S.-Pacific diplomacy under the Biden administration, Mr. Walsh told Kuroi Hawkins not getting the jump on regional engagement early on was a lost opportunity. I think personally it hasn't lived up to what I had expected would happen, especially in the early days of the administration. I think when you look at the the first year, there wasn't the urgency to engage in the Pacific that I think that a lot of people felt there needed to be. Um, And I think that the Solomon Islands, as you know, the security pact with China and and all the things that happened there, I think that's what really motivated the administration to really engage. Um, And I think that was... That was potentially one of the the big shortcomings um, because a lot of time was lost. Uh, I think there was a there was an opportunity in the first couple months of the administration to really prioritize the Pacific and really engage the Pacific. And there was a lot of strategy talk on the campaign and then some pitches during the transition period 
to try to get the administration to make that a priority. Um, the administration didn't make it a priority. And I think that that time that was lost ended up, you know, really coming back to, to bite the administration. But I think to give the administration credit, once the Solomon Island Security Pact happened, it did motivate them to take action and they did try to start engaging. You know, I think it's kind of this pattern of history that we have in the U.S. engagement in the Pacific. You know, we, we do tend to have these periods where we intensely engage, um, but we don't always live up to our commitments or live up to the expectations that we set. And the PNG visit was obviously one of those, even though that was, you know, a lot of things happened that made that not possible. Um, but I think that the challenge for the U.S. is that, you know, especially when you talk about the U.S. Pacific territories and you talk about the freely associated states, you know, there's this, this expectation gap. Um, and, you know, there's this historical pattern of behavior and the administration has to figure out a way to overcome that. And so there was a lot of intense engagement, especially around the COFA negotiations. Um, but if you go back, I mean, we were talking in 2018 and 2019 about that needing to happen. Um, you know, they waited to the last minute. And that's not the Biden administration's fault. I mean, the Trump administration also had a lot of people telling them they needed to engage much more intensely. And so what's ended up happening, I think, is we've got stuck in this like transactional relationship dilemma. And when you have transactional relationships and you have another strategic competitor come in, they start bidding up the price for everything. Both sides are bidding up the price. And that's what we're seeing happening. And I think those enduring partnerships and those mutually beneficial relationships and all of those things we like to talk about and we like to put into words and discursive commentary, you know, we have to actually live up to that. And because that didn't happen in the first year of the administration and then China really started to compete now we're stuck in this dilemma of, you know, how high do you want to go to uh, to be able to outcompete China? And you have to do that on each each single case. It's not something you do across the board. And Nauru is the latest example where a case came and people had to make a decision of, is it worth whatever it was, 100 million, 115 million, whatever it was, is it worth that to outcompete China in that moment? Because you're playing a long game. And so uh, so these decisions have to be made. One thing that um, the U.S. has come in for a lot of criticism on is um, the money that it's promised actually getting delivered or coming, I guess, passing through its systems to approval. What's your view on that process and what the U.S. is able to actually mobilize in terms of funding as opposed to China? Well, I think when you look back at funding and historically, I mean, look at the freely associated states, the U.S. has spent, you know, billions of dollars in the freely associated states. And so even when we did spend the money, you look at where they sit on the sustainable development goals rankings. You know, what was the performance for all that money that was spent? Uh, how did it help the average person living in the freely associated states? So I think you got to start with the whole question of what's the impact of the funding that has been delivered? And, you know, when we talk about delivering more funding, how do we make it so that it actually has more of a return on investment, not just for U.S. taxpayers, but for the local people that it's supposed to be supporting? Um, you know, I've worked in public health and other fields with the freely associated states, and I've seen the challenges they face in terms of capacity. Most people in Washington have no idea what type of challenges people face in the Pacific during something like a COVID pandemic. They think that money can solve it, but money can't solve it if you don't have the infrastructure, you don't have the capacity already in place. You have to have epidemiologists. You have to have all of these basic things. And so if you look at 
basic education, you look at electricity, internet, um, you look at water, you know, you look at public health, there's so many gaps. So I think you have to start with how do you make the money that has been delivered perform better? And then you have the other question about how do we deliver what's already been promised or at least what's been negotiated? And in the case of freely associated states, obviously we're having this this issue within Congress about continuing to fund the, the compacts that exist and trying to fund the, the newly negotiated ones. Um, and I think that that was a foreseeable problem. I don't think anyone thought that this was not going to happen. <laughs> and so, I mean, it happened with Palau already. Um, and so, and especially in this Congress and how divided it is, and, you know, we, I think there's a, a reasonable expectation that we were going to be facing this challenge and we're facing this challenge. And so the freely associated funds, that's, that's one big issue, but then there's the other issue of this 800, you know, that they've talked about delivering through the, the summit. And so that discussion, you know, a lot of that was already allocated in, in other programming. And it was just, you know, aggregated together to be able to come up with a big number to show that the U.S. is delivering. Um, you know, when we're talking about these, these values, when we're talking about hundreds of millions, in the case of freely associated, freely associated states, we're talking about billions. So there's a big difference between what we're talking about delivering elsewhere in the Pacific. And, uh, and I think that's one of the big challenges is just how we conceptualize all of this and how we talk about it and how we distinguish between the monies that has been spent, the monies that are supposed to be spent, and how the money should be spent. New Zealand's Foreign Minister Winston Peters and Dr Shane Ritti, Minister for Health and Pacific Peoples, are visiting three Pacific countries this week. They depart Tuesday night and return on Saturday, flying to Tonga, Cook Islands and then Samoa. In December last year, Mr Peters said the government wanted to resume and renew the Pacific Research Strategy with greater intensity. They will meet with Acting Prime Minister in Tonga, Cook Islands Prime Minister Mark Brown, Samoa's Head of State Tuimalia Liifano Vaalitsua Swalovi II and Prime Minister Fiamme Naomi Mata'afa. Minister Reti will also meet with select health officials in each country to discuss New Zealand's role in delivering on long-term health goals. Joining me to talk briefly about the trip is our reporter Alicia Foon, who will be travelling alongside Mr Peters and Mr Reti. Kia orana, Alicia. What can we expect from this trip? Hello, Fasana. Well, the New Zealand Foreign Affairs Minister Winston Peters, the Health Minister and Minister of Pacific Peoples, Dr Shane Reti, will be travelling to Tonga, the Cook Islands and then Samoa. In Tonga, the ministers will meet with Deputy Prime Minister Samuel Vaipulu before visiting a pharmacy warehouse that New Zealand has helped provide funding for. Now, that was part of the COVID-19 response, and the Crown Prince has been invited as the guest of honour. The visit is happening at an interesting time as well, where Prime Minister Huakaba Meliko, who is believed to be in New Zealand for a medical checkup, has been stripped of his portfolio as Minister of Armed Forces. So we'll definitely be following up on that. After the visit in Tonga, Winston Peters and Shane Ritchie will meet with Prime Minister Mark Brown and uh, they will have a groundbreaking ceremony for the new Funanganui Farmers Markets. Now, New Zealand contributed $8 million over the last three years to this, so this will be a time of celebration uh, and a great uh, gathering and reunion for the ministers. Dr Shane Ritchie will later visit the Rarotongan Hospital before the ministers gather for a Waitangi Day reception in the evening. 
In Samoa, the ministers will be meeting with Prime Minister Fiamme Naomi Mataafa before visiting the National University of Samoa. The ministers will arrive back to Fenua Point in Auckland with media and delegates on Saturday afternoon, so a whirlwind visit for both ministers of New Zealand. That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rndi.com slash programs. We're also on Spotify, Apple and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, to Fasui 4.